Hi, I'm Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. So let's talk about Moses 7 today, which is a continuation of the story of Enoch. We started last week with a lot of information about the beginning of Enoch's call in chapter 6, where God calls him and he says he's slow of speech and all that kind of stuff. And then we hear the message of the plan of salvation that Enos is instructed to share with the people. And I, I mentioned, but I'm going to mention again, that in chapter 6 of Moses, there is a real guarantee that the Lord gives to Enoch when he sends him to call his people to repentance, because these people are not nice people. And we talked about that. These are These are wicked people. There are many secret combinations amongst them. And they're all offended by him when he starts to preach this message. So you may remember in verse 32 of chapter 6, God says, you know, go forth and do as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. So in other words, there's a guarantee there that I'm going to preserve your life. There's also some evidence that it takes a long time for Zion to be established. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's start right at the beginning and talk about verse 1 of chapter 7 in Moses. So he's talking about how our father Adam taught these things. Of course, every time Adam is spoken of in this context, this is Adam and Eve. They taught these things and many have believed and become the sons of God. So apparently there were some who, and many, who had been saved because of the word of God. And many have believed not and have perished in their sins. So we have both. And that's kind of good to know. I mean, I think before I, I was even wondering about that because it doesn't really talk about the righteous. And we do know that this series of generations that come following Adam and Eve at the beginning of the world culminate with the flood, which destroys all living creatures other than Noah's immediate family because of their wickedness. So the general movement here is toward wickedness and abomination, not towards righteousness. Although it seems that some have believed, I don't know if he's just talking about that direct line where the prophets come from and the holders of the priesthood, but you know, their wives too, perhaps their children, maybe anyway, there were, there were some. And then we're going to talk about verse 10, which is the main message here. And the Lord said unto me, this is saying it to Enoch, go to this people and say unto them, repent, lest I come out and smite them with a curse and they die. I just want to say that a lot of people think that God is a pretty harsh God in the Old Testament and a kind, sweet God in the New Testament, but it's the same God. We know that Jehovah or Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. We've talked about that divine power of attorney. Many times he speaks as if he's the father, but he is the son. And he is the one who is interacting with people under the direction and under the, the stewardship of God the Father. But he is the steward over the earth. So it's the same message. It's the same messenger. And this is a sketchy record. So I would remind you that, you know, we, we have a sketchy record, even though there is good news taught as he teaches about Jesus Christ to Adam and Eve first, and they teach to their children. And Enoch gets the message because that's his message, is that, we are lost unless we repent and become baptized, and then through the atonement of Christ, we can be saved. We can become worthy of the kingdom. So it's the same message. It's the same good news. But I'm going to mention a couple of interesting things, I think, about the Old Testament in length. It's just under 1,200 pages long, but it covers 4,000 years-ish. So that's pretty sketchy record in some respects. And then if you look at Genesis, we realize that this part is even less detailed and because it's only 78 pages, not even 100 pages constitute the book of Genesis, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, but that covers over 2,000 years. So half 
of the history from Adam to Christ is covered in 78 pages in the Old Testament. Just these 50 chapters of Genesis. That's a sketchy record. And then the rest of the Old Testament, which is over 1,100 pages, are devoted to the other 2,000 years. Now, Moses gets about 220 pages himself. So again, it's not equally proportioned. Sometimes, you know, there's more time given to talk about some stories, some characters in the Old Testament. And so their callings and stewardships and other times are very sketchy. So sometimes with all the wickedness that's going on, perhaps we do hear a prevailing message of repent because otherwise you're going to be destroyed. But a lot of that was geared toward the response of the people. If they were soft-hearted and open to God, it didn't take as long to describe it. (laughs) But if they were wicked, if they were hard-hearted or wouldn't repent, then, you know, some of those seemingly sterner warnings are, are going to be a part of this record. And as we said, these people culminate in the destruction of the world through the flood. So it wasn't an easy time for the prophets during these generations. And as I said last week, I'm so grateful to live at a time on the earth. I mean, what a blessing it is that there are many who believe, many, and many who inside and outside of our church of Jesus Christ are good people. That doesn't make us perfect, any of us, and some of us are rebellious even within the ranks, but there is a lot of listening going on where people are hearkening to the light of Christ that they're born with and developing that into a greater light. And if we have the gospel, how blessed are we? Okay, so verse 11 talks about baptism. And it's just important to remember that the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as is God. So baptism was always a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These The importance of keeping these ordinances so that we could make covenants with God and mark them in the appropriate way with priesthood keys, you know, was from the time of Adam. And Adam and Eve, we, we read already, were baptized and And this is the message of Enoch. Let's get out there and repent and be baptized. Then we have this beautiful part about the faith of Enoch in verse 13. So great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord and the earth trembled and the mountains fled, even according to his command. And the rivers of water were turned out of their course and the roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness. <laughs> I think that's so beautiful. I mean, can you imagine what that's like to have a faith so great that the animals make this kind of, you know, demonstrable response? That's exciting. Of course, let's not, you know, minimize the fact that mountains moved and rivers changed course because of the faith of Enoch that he could command these things. So, you know, why go up and fight Zion? It's not going to turn out very well, is it? And all nations feared greatly, it says. Well, that makes sense. So powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of the language which God had given him. Now, there is a weakness that turned into a strength, right? Because he talks about, in chapter 6, being a slow speech. Well, now great is the power of his language. And verse 14, it talks about, there came up land out of the depth of the sea. (laughs) So a new island is formed. And so great was the fear of the enemies of the people of God that they fled and stood afar off and went on that land. So they were coming up against Zion, but here comes this new island out of the sea, and they think, okay, we better retreat to that spot to save ourselves. And verse 15, the giants of the land also stood afar off. Now, there are some, there's a footnote here, and there are a few references in the Old Testament to a group of people who were referred to as giants large people, I guess, and there went for the curse upon all people that fought against God. 
because fighting against Zion is fighting against God, right? And in verse 16, halfway through, the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. Verse 17, the fear of the Lord was upon all nations, so great was the glory of the Lord which was upon his people. And going on in verse 17, the Lord blessed the land, and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places, and did flourish. And that's important. God prospers his people. When we do what's right, the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. Sometimes he delays the harvest or, or eliminates the harvest if, if we are unrighteous. But if we are righteous, then prosperity comes because the Lord keeps his promises. And he sends a bounteous harvest of whatever nature, you know, that, that is required. So it's all about, you know, our willingness to obey. Now, this is not to say that every time we don't get that bounteous harvest or that we're not getting blessings that we feel that we need, that we are being unrighteous. I mean, we should always look for that and make sure that we're not being sinful. But if we're not being sinful and we aren't rebellious, but we're trying to be obedient, then there are reasons that God is stretching our faith. And that's the process that we're in, a time of growing and overcoming weakness and showing that we're going to serve the Lord at all hazards. So let's not make that mistake that Every time we do something right, we're going to get that $100 bill in our pocket. That would not constitute a test. So we are tested and tried in this journey. But the ultimate outcome of Zion and Zion people is that God takes care of them in all the ways that are needed. So this generates, of course, jealousy in people around. And that must be why they came up against Zion, because they saw how powerful that city was. It was a city of holiness, also a city of light and flourishing, light, truth, intelligence, all the good things that come with that. And then verse 18, very important, Zion defined, and we refer to this often when we're talking about what Zion is, and the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. And that's really important too. One heart, all hearts set upon God, our desire being set upon God, wanting to do his will, to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to conform our lives to his example. So one heart, but one mind also. And this is really, really important also. So we're going to talk about this a little bit more in another setting, but I'm just going to say right now that, that we've talked a little bit about not having the mind of God, that Satan in the Garden of Eden thought that he was destroying the world because he knew not the mind of God, or Laman and Lemuel knew not the mind of God, or they didn't know the ways of God. So becoming one mind really clearly means becoming reconciled and conformed to the mind of God. So this isn't about like, let's all vote on it and decide what we're going to believe as a people so that we can be of one mind. And it's certainly not about a coin toss. This is about conforming to the mind of God. And I've talked about this before, you know, that Isaiah 55 verse about my thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord says, and my ways are not your ways, because mine are higher. And again, this is not an indictment or even a description. It's an invitation. Come to my way of thinking. Come to me in all ways, including the way you think, because what I think is truth. And this is not, you know, a democracy where we can vote or try to talk God out of his knowledge and the reality of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come, which is truth. So if we are not reconciled with God, if we're not reconciled with his prophet, 
which, you know, can be challenging. But if we are not reconciled with the way God works and the way he thinks, then we need to make adjustments so that we can come to Christ and be of one mind. We may not always understand everything that the prophets say or do, but we need not to be rebellious about it. We need to be prayerful and considering so that we can come to the mind of Christ and recognize what the way is that will will bring us to being a more Zion people. And if it weren't challenging, it wouldn't count, right? In verse 19, we have another name given to Zion, the city of holiness. And that's a beautiful name. Then in verse 21, an important phrase is introduced. This is now that the Lord is showing Enoch everything. You know, what he does with his prophets. He did this with Moses. He takes him to a high mountain and he shows him everything. Same thing happened to Nephi. I mean, many prophets are allowed to pierce the veil and shown the earth as it was, as it is to come, and as it is now. And this is what Enoch is beholding. He he sees all the inhabitants of the earth, and he beheld, and lo, Zion, in process of time, was taken up into heaven. So, in process of time is a great phrase. Neil Maxwell used to use that in one speech in April 1990 called Endure It Well. He says this, this is Maxwell, and thus, while the scriptural phrase in process of time means eventually, it also denotes an entire spiritual process. I think that's a beautiful thought that in process of time is talking about, you know, the spiritual becoming, this whole spiritual process. And then Maxwell quotes the verse we just read, Moses 7.21, and then goes on to say, By itself, of course, the passage of time does not bring an automatic advance. Uh, Boy, that's an important point. You know, sometimes we hear people say things like, time heals all wounds. That's not true. I can tell you as a counselor, that is not true. Time and processing, which needs to be correct and complete processing, can heal our wounds over time. But if we are not able to do that processing because we don't know how to do it or we don't want to do it, then time alone does not heal wounds. There are people who remain injured or bitter their whole lives. Sometimes people say things like, well, you know, I'll get mellower as I get older. You know, older people are all mellow. But that's not true. There are some older people who are just nastier and and some who are mellower. So what happened? Well, <laughs> I used to talk to my husband about this decades ago. I'd say, I think people intensify with age. I don't think it goes one way or another. There's not automatic, you know, virtue development that happens just over time. You have to choose which way you're going to go. So I would say that, you know, we need to be as nice as we can. We need to be the nicest people, the kindest people, the most, you know, full of integrity that we can be so that that will increase over time as we intensify. (laughs) Anyway, the passage of time does not bring an automatic advance. Maxwell continues, yet like the prodigal son, we often need the process of time in order to come to our spiritual senses. Because it does say that about the prodigal son, doesn't it? That over time, he he came to his, his senses again, spiritually. Uh, another example that Maxwell uses is the reunion of Jacob and Esau in the desert so many years after their sibling rivalry. And maybe you remember that story, but we're going to talk about it in a few weeks, so I'm not going to take any time now. Then he goes on. Maxwell says, generosity can replace animosity. Reflection can bring perception. 
but reflection and introspection require time. And then this terrific sentence, so many spiritual outcomes require saving truths to be mixed with time, forming the elixir of experience, that sovereign remedy for so many things. I'm going to read that again. So many spiritual outcomes require saving truths to be mixed with time, forming the elixir of experience, that sovereign remedy for so many things. What a beautiful statement. In verse 22, I'm going to mention a lot of these verses because there are little gems in each of them or important little details. So Enoch also beheld the residue of the people, which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain, for the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them. Okay, so the Bible tells us that black people are the seed of Cain. Now, remember, this is a very sketchy record. There are symbols that are used. I don't know if this is literal, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think we have enough information to judge either way, other than here's what the record says for now. But what we do know is that God is no respecter of persons, meaning that he invites all, black and white, bond and free, male and female, to come to Christ and be saved through the atoning blood of Christ and our own repentance. So our parents could have been scoundrels at some point. I mean, who doesn't have a horse thief or a scoundrel, you know, somewhere on the on the family line, but going back far enough. You know, we, we all have scoundrels somewhere in our family, but does that mean that I have to be a scoundrel or that I'm off the hook if I am a scoundrel? Of course not. Every person we know, whether on this planet or in the spirit world, which is still part of the probationary period, will have an opportunity without blinders on or without interference will be able to understand what God is offering his children through Christ and will have the full opportunity to express the honest desires of our heart concerning that gospel message and our opportunities to become. So let's not get bogged down by this. God separates his people in lots of ways. We know that Lamanites had darker skin than the Nephites, but there were people in the Lamanites that became more righteous than the Nephites, and the Nephites ultimately were more wicked than the Lamanites and are destroyed. So anyway, it's not so simple as to say, you know, we'll see God's prejudice. Of course he's not. There are so many ways that he does divide people. He came to the house of Israel. He didn't come to the Gentiles when Christ walked upon the earth and performed his earthly ministry. Uh, but that didn't mean he didn't love the Gentiles. And he tells that Gentile woman one time, you know, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. So he didn't look at her and say like, well, you can't possibly have faith because, you know, you're a Gentile. No, he recognized faith, pure faith when he saw it. And he said, no, this is even greater faith than you see in Israel, which, you know, anyway, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what group we belong to or have belonged to. And plus, we're all mixed at this point anyway, at some level. So, you know, let's not get bogged down and think that the gospel is prejudice. That message is never about prejudice. It's always about all are invited, all come. And if there are times when God places restrictions or limitations on the interaction between groups or whatever, that doesn't mean he's not giving everybody a fair chance before this temporal time or probationary period is over. He will and he does because he is God and he is just as well as merciful. Okay, we're going to go on. Uh, verse... 28. And this comes into a really tender part here. Came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it 
and saying, How is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as the rain upon the mountains? And Enoch said unto the Lord in verse 29, How is it that thou canst weep, saying thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity? I mean, Enoch's kind of surprised that the Lord can weep. And he wants to know why. And he talks about how great God's creations are and how just and merciful and kind forever. That's the end of verse 30. And then 31, thou hast taken Zion to thine own bosom from all thy creations, from all eternity to eternity, and not but peace, justice, and truth is the habitation of thy throne. So Enoch has seen it. Enoch is now off the earth with his people and his city in the presence of God. And he says, everything is perfect up here. Mercy shall go before thy face and have no one. So how is it that thou canst weep? I mean, like everything is, you're, you're such an amazing divine God, a creature of deity that, and you have all these virtues and everything you do is amazing. Why are you crying? And then he says, in verse 32, the answer, the Lord says to Enoch, Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. And I gave unto them their knowledge in the day that I created them. And in the Garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. So he's going to explain something really important about agency here. Verse 33, And unto thy brethren have I said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. Now let's stop for a second, because I think that's really important. And I connect that with the part where he says he gave unto man his agency. And why? He gave us agency so we could choose him to be our father and accept him as our father and do things his way and come to one mind because we are approaching the mind of God. So that's what agency is for. And if we continue to choose God, our agency actually increases. We have more and more opportunities to choose to become as Christ is. So that's what our agency is for. Now, when we don't choose God and we choose wickedness, as has been pointed out many times, our agency actually starts to diminish, which is the irony of, of what we pointed out last week, that Cain and its murdering Abel says, I am free. I mean, boy, did he have darkness replacing the light in his mind and heart because he was becoming enslaved more and more through his behavior. He was the opposite of free. So agency and enlarges our potential to do things that, that are good for us, and sin diminishes those opportunities until we are wrapped in the chains of hell. So well, people who say, well, I'm free and I can do whatever I want, you know, well, yeah, you can go to hell and it's nobody else's fault, but that's not to your advantage. You can't blame anybody else and say, well, the devil made me do it, or, you know, it's because of my mother or my father or my brother or my sister. It's, no, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry. I'm grateful that the plan is so clear that God gave us agency so we could choose him and we can always choose him and we can keep choosing him until we approach his character and can become Zion individuals. So anyway, this is the tragedy, though, that God says, who is Jehovah, but behold, they are without affection and they hate their own blood. So it's pretty awful. This phrase that we use, man's inhumanity to man, is a tragic phrase that brothers and sisters can treat each other in such destructive, horrible ways. And the heavens weep over it. Now, obviously, God knows the end from the beginning. All things are present with him, and there really is no end anyway, but he knows that it all is going to be fine and good and that there will be glory at the end of this existence in the measure that people are willing to receive it, but all will be redeemed from hell. So it's a happy ending and he knows it, but he's teaching something to Enoch here. 
And I think that's why God waves. He does have the tenderness and love and mercy to look at us and say, this is really a shame that we take this great potential and do such evil with it. Going on in verse 34, he's going to tell us what's happening here. The fire of my indignation is kindled against them. And in my hot displeasure, will I send in the floods upon them. So he warned a long time before Noah that there would be destruction by flood if there was no repentance among the people. In verse 35, we get a couple of other names of God that are beautiful. Behold, I am God. Man of holiness is my name. Man of counsel is my name. And endless and eternal is my name also. All beautiful. Man of holiness, man of counsel. That's one we don't hear very often. Endless and eternal. We hear those more often. Verse 36, Wherefore I can stretch forth mine hands and hold all the creations which I have made, and mine eye can pierce them also. And among all the workmanship of mine hands, there has not been so great wickedness as among thy brethren. That's quite a statement because we are given to understand in Revelation that there are more than just our earth that are part of this particular running of the plan, that Christ is the Savior of of more, it has been suggested 12 from some of the parables that are taught or explanations that are given in scripture. But at any rate, there are many worlds that are a part of this go around in the plan of salvation and for whom Christ atoned. But this earth has great wickedness in it and many that become very hard hearted. And it's a, it's a sad story with a happy ending. Let's not forget. It's a happy ending. Through Christ. Verse 38. These which thine eyes are upon shall perish in the floods. So again, lots of warning here that this is coming. Verse 39. He talks of Christ. And that is the good news. That is always the good news. And look how that is capitalized in verse 39. That refers to Christ. And that, meaning Christ, which I have chosen, hath pled before my face. Wherefore, he suffered for their sins, inasmuch as they will repent in the day that my chosen shall return unto me. And until that day they shall be in torment. So Christ provides the answer, as always. In verse 40, just to make sure that the answer has been given, that Enoch understands that, he says, Wherefore, for this shall the heavens weep. That's why I'm weeping. And then um, in verse 41, Enoch weeps. Now that he looks on this wickedness and their misery, he weeps himself and stretched forth his arms and his heart swelled wide as eternity and his bowels yearned and all eternity shook. And then look at this. He goes on to verse 42. Enoch saw Noah and his family and that Noah and his family are saved with a temporal salvation, meaning they escape the flood, but they're the only ones. And he sees that he builds an ark in verse 43. And as Enoch saw this in verse 44, he had bitterness of soul and wept over his brethren because they are so wicked that they have to be cleansed from the earth. And that makes him sad. And he says unto the heavens, I will refuse to be comforted, which is pretty interesting, isn't it? Like, I don't even want to feel better about this because it's really a tragic tale. But the Lord says unto Enoch, lift up your heart and be glad and look. And then he sees the time after Noah. And he asks, when shall the day of the Lord come? That's midway through verse 45. And then in verse 46, the Lord answers, it shall be in the meridian of time. 
So he's asking, well, when will Christ come to make possible the redemption from sin? And it's going to be in the meridian of time. And then Enoch sees the day of the coming, in verse 47, of the coming of the Son of Man, even in the flesh, and his soul rejoiced, saying that righteous is lifted up and the Lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. And through faith, I am in the bosom of the Father, and behold, Zion is with me. Beautiful, beautiful words. Then interestingly, verse 48 starts to talk about the earth's suffering. So Enoch looks upon the earth and he heard a voice from the bowels of the earth, therefore saying, woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained. I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my creator sanctify me that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face? Isn't that of quite the image of the earth suffering and groaning because of the wickedness of the people who are on her. And then Enoch hears the earth mourn, and he weeps again and cries unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, will thou not have compassion upon the earth? <laughs> Would you please, can you be, you know, compassionate? We're going to jump to 53, and the Lord says, Blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come, for he saith, I am Messiah, the King of Zion the rock of heaven, another great name for Christ, which is broad as eternity. So he's talking about Jesus Christ is going to bring joy to the earth. And then 54, Enoch cries unto the Lord saying, when the son of man cometh in the flesh, shall the earth rest? Like, is that when the rest is going to come and peace will be on the earth? But the Lord says, look, and then he sees that Christ is crucified in verse 55. So no, that's not going to be the time of the rest for the earth, even though for a season to have Christ come and walk upon the earth is joyful. But then he's crucified by wicked men. So then in verse 56, he sees that all the creations of God mourned and the earth groaned at the time of the crucifixion. And we have read that before, right? And the rocks were rent and the saints arose and were crowned at the right hand of the Son of Man. So, you know, some of the saints are resurrected at that time after Christ breaks the bands of death, but the earth itself groans at, again, the wickedness that exists, that that these people, the only ones who ever lived upon this earth that would be wicked enough to kill their God, had succeeded in, in what they thought, again, would be the destruction of Christianity, of that message of Christ, of the good news. And of course, it was just the beginning. People really don't get how God thinks, do they? So verse 58, then Enoch asks again, when will the earth rest? In verse 59, he sees Christ ascending to the Father, and he calls unto the Lord, unto Jesus Christ, saying, Wilt thou not come again upon the earth? Because thou art God, and I know thee. You know, are you going to come back? <laughs> Wherefore I ask thee, if thou wilt not come again on the earth? At the end of verse 59, and the Lord says unto Enoch, As I live, even so will I come in the last days and the days of wickedness and vengeance to fulfill the oath which I have made unto you concerning the children of Noah. Meaning that the children of Noah, you know, after the flood would never be destroyed from off the face of the earth until the coming of Christ again to cleanse the earth from wickedness at that time. And then in verse 61, and the day shall come that the earth shall rest. <laughs> So when Christ comes, you know, it's the beginning of the millennium and a thousand years of righteousness will come forth and begin and the earth will rest. Verse 64 makes that very clear that Zion will be his abode and for the space of a thousand years, the earth shall rest. Isn't that beautiful? 
Now, he does say some important things about the end of the time before Christ comes, where he talks about how he will gather his elect. This is kind of partway through verse 62. Unto a place which I shall prepare, unholy city. And then it will be Zion and the New Jerusalem in verse 63. Then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. So this is the coming together of the Zion from beneath, which will be the New Jerusalem built in our dispensation and in our day, basically, or shortly thereafter, depending on our age. And... The Zion from above, meaning the city of Enoch, will return to earth to be joined with the Zion that is on the earth and those people, and they will embrace and be thrilled that they have all heeded the invitation and responded to the invitation to become a Zion people in righteousness. How wonderful. And then, of course, the millennium and the earth rests. So it's kind of a long series of verses here, but it's really important. It's really important that we see kind of like you know, what is it that Enoch accomplished here? The record says basically that it was over 350 years-ish that it took for Zion to be established at the time of Enoch in his city. Remember, they started from great wickedness. And they were surrounded by wickedness. I don't think it's going to take us that long when the time comes, and especially because we are not to wait until the call to be prepared to be a Zion people, because that can be accomplished in any age on the earth. And this is an individual effort. It may be an effort in your marriage. That would be wonderful. It might be an effort in your family. But the point is that we individually can become a Zion people so that when that call comes, and this is not about starting a Zion cult. It's not about, you know, thinking that that the gospel, you know, is now you know, just for this group of people who understand the call to build Zion. That's not true. All of us are called to build Zion. Some will respond and some won't. But we're not supposed to separate ourselves from the church. The church is God's kingdom on the earth. And we wait for the prophet. We wait for the prophet to call people to come to Jackson County and build the city of holiness, the New Jerusalem, the Zion in the New Jerusalem, and the temple that needs to be there when Christ comes. So what the message is here is that we still, though, have every opportunity because the fullness of the gospel is on the earth. We have temples with all those wonderful, wonderful keys, all that wonderful gospel truth that is taught there and we are reminded of. And then we have the priesthood available to us. We have the ordinances of the gospel. We have the, the principles in rich abundance. We have living prophets that we can listen to every day. It's amazing. We can we can have access to all this stuff. What are we waiting for? So just a couple of additional thoughts on Zion. This is from John Pontius, and he wrote a book called The Triumph of Zion that is really, really great. I really like this book. He has he uses the words of many prophets to to create his um, understanding and try to share that understanding with us. And he says this: he says, the blinding truth before us is that Zion is not beyond our reach. The question before us is only whether we, you and I, are willing to pay the price to be a part of it. That's the question. That's the question. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Zion is within our reach? Meaning to become a Zion individual. It's not my place to call others into Zion in terms of, you know, a physical location. And like I said, this isn't about creating a subset of members of the church. 
that believe a different way. or But we're just taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're looking at it clearly and seeing what the invitation is. There has to be a Zion people on the earth before the Savior comes. What are we waiting for? Again, we will follow the prophet in timing and in the essentials and the details of how Zion is to be established in the center space of Zion in Jackson County. But in the meantime... Like, am I waiting until then to try to be sanctified? Because I need to be pure if I want to be a part of Zion. I need to be purified by the Holy Ghost, which comes after I have committed to obedience and pursued that path in process of time. Because that is how Zion comes, is in process of time, where I hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I am willing to change my mind if it conflicts with God's mind. I'm willing to open to that, to understand, to be persuaded to God's way, to to seek it, to actually really seek it and ask myself, what does God think about this? What does he think of me? What would he like me to do in this situation or this one? Brothers and sisters, I think this is really exciting stuff. I think it is a message for our time. I think our prophets are talking about it. As I've mentioned, you know, in some recent conferences, Zion is being talked about by our leaders because there is no time to waste and there is no reason to wait. We can, we can be on this path to being a Zion individual, whether or not we participate in the building of the city. We need that qualification if we are going to be with the Lord. And I really want that. I hope that all of us want that. I hope that we're willing to sacrifice our sins, that we're willing to sacrifice our bad habits, our laziness, any slothfulness, any sloppiness, that line upon line, precept upon precept, guided by the Spirit, and of course, inconsistency with revealed Scripture in the words of the prophets, that we will conform our lives closer and closer to a Zion life, to the life of Jesus Christ, and that we will become more like Him, so that when He comes, We will know him because we will be like him. That's the whole point, right? And that that is the same journey that we've talked about last year. About It's the journey towards sanctification because it is the Holy Ghost that can make me pure and can make each of us pure on conditions of consistent righteousness and hungering and thirsting after that status, that ability to become filled with the Holy Ghost to where a physical change is manifest in my life. I could talk about this forever. We're going to stop right here. Brothers and sisters, let's build Zion. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>